of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 540. With me today is Jason Lindgren and Holistic Hilda. It's her first time uh, showing up. We're going to primarily be covering uh, ideas about diet, but we're going to touch on a lot of interesting things. I'm glancing over our bullet points for topics today. Uh, we're going to visit the Maasai tribes, Aboriginal tribes, and one of my favorites, the Kazakh eagle hunters of Mongolia, which in my earlier years, I did a lot of work checking out that culture. Very interesting uh, how people can even survive uh, where those people live. It's incredible. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a warm and pleasant good morning. All right, let's jump in. Welcome, Hilda. Thank you so much for having me, Crow and Jason. I'm really excited to be here. Perfect. Why don't we come out of the gate, tell people where they can contact you, find your work, your podcast, websites, all that. Absolutely. So I go by Holistic Hilda because my full name is a mouthful. It's Hilda Labradagor. So folks can find me on my website, holistichilda.com. I'm also the host and producer of the Wise Traditions podcast for the Weston A. Price Foundation. And that can be found on any podcast platform. And I do recommend that folks check out also the westonaprice.org website. Uh, they've got so many resources and they've been at this for a while, again, doing important work in the name of Weston A. Price. So way back in episode 323 with Mandara, which means we were talking about cymatics at some level, uh, she brought up Dr. Price and dentistry. As a matter of fact, I think episode 323 uh, is a lot about teeth. Can you just tell us who Dr. Price is and why he's important? I get so excited about this topic because his work is so often overlooked, but so important and relevant in this day and age. So he was a dentist researcher from the early 1930s. He traveled the world because he didn't just want to kind of take it at face value uh, that people's health was better in other parts of the world. You guys, he would get National Geographic magazine and see the beautiful broad faces of indigenous peoples. And then he would contrast them with the folks coming to his clinic. And he was completely aware that something was wrong, that the children coming to his clinic, for example, had crowded teeth and poor behavior and issues with vision. And in contrast, these indigenous peoples looked amazing and hale and hearty with good posture and great fertility and apparent optimism. So he took it upon himself to travel the world. And it took him about 10 years because this was way before JetBlue, but he made it. And he went to visit the, the Swiss and Eskimos in Alaska and the Maasai in Kenya and the South Sea Pacific Islands. He went all over the world and his findings, he summarized in his book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And basically what he found, which will be no surprise to anyone listening to this podcast, is that the ancient ways are best. And what we need to do is to learn from the indigenous people groups. And happily, many of them are willing to share the ideas that have helped them enjoy vital health for as long as they've been on the planet. So that kind of encapsulates his work, I believe. What the heck? Are you actually trying to tell us that living close to nature and having culture matters in this world? Is that what you're bringing to the table? Oh my gosh, a hundred percent. And if I could shout it from the rooftops, I would. I'm so glad I'm on your show to, to get the word out even more, but we've lost our way. That's why some people call this time now the remembering, because there are people actually still living on the planet. I've kind of picked up the mantle of Dr. Price along with some colleagues of mine 
to continue finding these people who are living according to their traditions and trying to remember with them what we need for optimal health. And I can tell you right now, it doesn't come in any pricey program or special beach body package, you know, shape up special. It really does come from ancient health ways that have served mankind for eons. You know, recently, and I'm going to jump right into the bullets because I want to get into these things. I'm going to open up with the Messiah elder that changed everything for you. But recently I saw a thing where apparently I want to get this right. Was it Popeye's Chick-fil-A and maybe Burger King? Hope I got that right. Maybe I didn't. I'm in the ballpark. It's fast food. They had pages up that showed there were 30 some odd ingredients in what's supposed to be a hamburger or chicken sandwich. Apparently it came to the notice of people who started taking apart that some major percentage of what's supposed to just be basically a meat sandwich was man-made chemicals. They posted it online and now the ingredients pages have apparently uh, been pulled down from these websites. But it goes to show uh, here where I live in America, our diet is the butt of jokes all over the world because of the damage that it's doing. But let's jump in. Uh, the lead bullet point here uh, states that you met a Maasai elder and that changed everything for you. Oh, yes. So in 2015, uh, the Weston A. Price Foundation, the group I'm affiliated with, got a call from a Maasai warrior who said, please send someone over. He was calling from a small village on the border of Tanzania. He said, please send someone over. We're all getting sick. He said, I have diabetes. My wife has asthma. He had seen Crow, the physical degeneration of his people. He had come across some pamphlets explaining the work of Dr. Price. He had witnessed it with his own eyes and his community and in his family. So he wanted someone to come over. He told me later that he would have told his tribe himself. But, you know, it's more convincing when someone comes from across the ocean and from very far away to tell you some important truth. So I landed in this small village and I was surrounded by the Maasai. And I, happily, I had a translator. They speak Ma. And sometimes I'd have to go through two translators to get to them. First, my English would be translated into Swahili and then from Swahili into Ma. But the most amazing part of that encounter, well, there are two bits. One is that I had the privilege of saying, please don't eat the American way. Don't eat our way. Eat your way. Eat the way that has served you well. And then, so that was a privilege. But number two, I also went to learn, not just to speak about the work of Price. And I had the opportunity to talk to an elder named Ole Sanku. He was so old, he didn't even know how old he was, honestly. <laughs> he was probably close to 100 is what we calculated later. And he came up to the house where I was staying under his own auspices with a simple walking stick. And I hadn't even launched the Wise Traditions podcast yet, but I knew I wanted to get this man's information as much as I could recorded. So I grabbed my iPhone, I pushed voice memo, and through translators, I asked him, what was it like when you were a child? What did you eat? How was your health? You know, tell me about what's shifted. And the answers were mind-blowing. And that's what changed everything for me when I realized, oh my goodness, there are still people around the world living according to their traditions and they are willing, God bless them, to share some of their ancestral secrets with us. And I'll tell you a couple of them right off the bat. When I said to him, what did you eat growing up? What did you eat as a, as a village, as a tribe here? And he said, 
whatever we could catch. <laughs> he literally said, whatever we could catch. They were hunters. You know, the Maasai traditionally have thrived on meat and milk and blood. And yet they had departed from that. I was sitting in a, a, a little living room, let's say, uh, with a woman who was related to one of the warriors. And she was wearing her traditional Maasai garb, like all the beaded earrings and jewelry and clothing. And in one hand, I kid you not, she had a chai tea and in the other, a white bread jelly sandwich. And so I saw this pull of modernity while this tribal group was still enjoying some of their traditions. They were being tugged. And this is exactly what Dr. Price saw. He said, these indigenous people groups are getting the displacing foods of modern commerce. And as they do so, their health deteriorates. And it wasn't just their physical health, though he saw signs of chronic conditions that had not appeared before modernity touched these groups. But he also saw in the next generations a change in the facial structure. Again, as a dentist, he was very attuned to these things. But you can see even now as you walk down the street that people have weak jaw lines and they've often got straight teeth only because of braces. So there's this cascade of physical degeneration that happens when the displacing foods of modern commerce are introduced. And this is what I saw with Olesanku and his tribe. But just to tell you a couple more of his answers, because I get excited and I thought they were so beautiful. I said, you know, what was your health like as a child? He said, we never got sick. He literally said, we never got sick. And if we felt like a shiver coming on, like maybe we didn't feel 100%, he said we would drink milk from the cattle. And he demonstrated to me drinking milk directly from the udder. We're talking raw milk. So their diet was mostly, yes, meat and milk and blood and raw milk and maybe some honey and fruit. But this man was vibrant. I mean, a 60-year-old in our country could only hope to be as strong as Ole Sanku was. And when I did ask him, why the shift? What's happening? Why is your group leaving your traditions? You know what he said? He said, education. He knew, he knew it was the you know, government's intervention, not only teaching, let's say, reading and writing, but indoctrinating in the people uh, a shame of their culture and their language that has trickled into this tribe. And you know, the Maasai used to be the hale and hardy people in Africa, tall and strong and and swift, and and it's changing. And Ole could see that as well. By the way, did the inoculation make it to that tribe? Had these people been inoculated? Thank you for asking. You know, when I went there in 2015, Ole did say to me, now they tell us diseases are coming and we all need to get shots. He said, but we never got shots. <laughs> so he had this innate wisdom, right? Um, I do believe they, as they did everywhere around the world, they tried to push it on them when 2020 rolled around. I don't know. Um, and I do need to ask my contacts there what happened, how many of them succumbed to those pressures. But I can tell you this, modernity has its allure. And so there is, uh, I'm sure there were incentives, just like over here, we had donuts and other things. There were incentives for people who, quote unquote, cooperated and probably disincentives for those who did not. But I can't tell you at this time if the tribe succumbed to the pressure. Well, if I'm not mistaken, and I may well be, don't the Maasai count wealth in cattle? And if that is the case, how is it that the Western food is making it into the tribe? Because that would require money. I'm guessing there must be a store 
uh, not too far from the tribe where they're getting this stuff? Or how, how does it happen? I mean, how is a how is a hundred percent sugar jelly making it into the tribe? That's a great question. I think you're right. There are nearby stores and the tug of modernity, even on this tribe, they weren't completely isolated as the groups that Dr. Price saw a hundred years ago. Um, they had access to modern things. And then when that happens, you want to get clothing so that when you go to the town, you look like everybody else, right? And you can go to the meetings and, you know, sit under fluorescent lights. And so uh, here's one change I can tell you about. I have a friend that had been in that very area in Kenya about 15 years prior. And she said, oh, Hilda, you're going to see the elders sitting around kind of squatting as they do when they have their meetings as a tribe. And it's just so beautiful to see this. And when I got there, you know what they were sitting in? Plastic chairs is what they were sitting in. It's oh, it's so troubling that that tug is there. Yeah, it, it's it's prominent. Now, how they make their money, I think some people do, just as they do in the U.S., have a hard time continuing with their tradition of being herders and just living with that. So they start taking part-time jobs or again, the education inculcates in them the need to work in the city. And so then they start going there and it creates this, this cycle, right? Of needing money and then making money and kind of buying into the larger culture. Are the Maasai still keeping cattle on mass? I mean, is that still part of their culture? And by the way, if I'm not mistaken, the Maasai are known as very slender, tall, athletic peoples. Did you notice obesity when you were there? Yes, I did notice some obesity, not so much among the men, actually, but more among the women. But I wouldn't call it obesity. Actually, I would just call it uh, some weight gain because as as women age, their bodies are different than men's. That might have been a normal thing. But I do think, um, to answer your question, yes, cattle are still considered wealth. Uh, but I do know also that this particular community in Oiti has been hard hit by drought in recent years. And so that makes their wealth literally die before their very eyes, despite their best intentions. And what does that do? Again, it, it forces them to find new means of income and sustaining their families. And then there's this tug. I remember in very remote parts of Kenya and Zimbabwe, sometimes coming across a very small stand you know, selling some local fruits and what have you, maybe some honey that would be in a place where you would think no traffic would ever come and still blazoned on the roof and the tin sides of the stand would be the Coca-Cola brand. <laughs> because the market share of Coca-Cola has gone down in recent years. You know, people are smartening up in some ways in the US and they don't want to drink as much soda. So they put Africa in their crosshairs. So they start, you know, promulgating and and putting out their propaganda for the Africans. It's, it's quite sad to see. And of course, this is happening on a number of levels. But um, yeah, the cattle are still their wealth, but I think they're they're hard to maintain. And the pull of modernity is strong. Well, I'm not going to sidetrack into the uh, the weather manipulation. I know. It sounds like Jason's got something to add. So um, we'll have Jason go at it here in a second. But I wanted to ask you, do the Maasai have cell phones? And when you were out, I mean, were you out in the tribal area? Did you have a cell signal? I don't think, okay, to answer your first question, yes, some of the Maasai had cell phones. You know, they're much more affordable in other parts of the world than they are in the US. And they were flip phones. They were flip phones because that's the way they communicate with each other now. Well, I'll say with the city, not always with each other. But it's, yeah, it's very interesting how 
modernity creeps into these ancient cultures. And then, I don't know, I just see the tug going both ways where modern people want to live more traditionally, or at least in my alternative ancestral-like circles they do. And then the traditional people see modernity as super posh, you know, and so they're sending each other's pictures through their flip phones and stuff. And it's just a wild, topsy-turvy world at times. Is there a division amongst the tribe? Like, is a certain percentage still sticking to the old ways and a certain percentage only want to do the new stuff? Or has modernity just completely taken over everything? No, Jason, I'm so glad you asked that question because I was curious myself because at the end of my visit in 2015, there was a small church in as part of this community in Oiti, as part of this village in this tribe. And the pastor got up at the end of my visit and said, starting today, the women will cook our traditional foods. And I cringed because I thought, oh no, are these women going to be mad at me? Like what kind of decision was this made from the top down only to find out later that the Maasai do make their decisions by consensus. And I believe a group of elders got together and trust me, they weren't just like, oh, this lady, this Latina lady has some good things to say. They realized, as you say, Crow, that the bell rang true and that they needed to return to their own traditional health ways and dietary ways. So they made that commitment. And I returned a year later and saw it played out. So uh, one woman, for example, left her job as a part-time preschool teacher and started cultivating more of the crops that are indigenous to that area and feeding her family and selling some at market. So there were some shifts. Uh, What I'd like to do now is go back again, right? And see so many years later, six years later, what's going on now. But I'm happy to say that together they decided that they were going to return to their ways. As a matter of fact, when I went back in 2016, someone had come across a book written by a Maasai about their traditions. And it was like a almost like a lost parts of the Bible that had been rediscovered. They were so ecstatic as a community to revisit some of the traditions that they may have forgotten themselves. You know, Jason will probably remember this better than I do, but it seems to me, I want to say it's been like 10 years or more, there was this big to-do that sub-Saharan Africa didn't have internet yet. And Facebook, if I remember this correctly, was going to solve it. They were going to launch a satellite up into magical space with a magical satellite and lo and behold, bring Facebook and modernity to sub-Saharan Africa. But of course, everyone can guess what happened, uh, if I remember correctly, and I may not. I think it was Zuckerberg's birthday or something. There was some, some date that was special about the launch. Of course, it blows up on the, the launch pad, proving a couple things. That first of all, there are places in this world that don't have internet, particularly in Africa. And if satellites were real, that would not be the case. But Jason, do you remember anything about this? Or am I remembering a past life? <laughs> no, I remember something to that effect. I don't remember all the details, though. But anyhow, to, to push on, I was kind of relieved a little bit to hear that they had flip phones, which is not it's not ideal, of right. course. But that also implies that maybe out in the tribal areas, they don't have internet yet. But next on your bullet list... Much prior to you, I'm guessing, Dr. Price had an encounter with the Maasai. Oh, yes. (laughs) And he was astounded by the level of health there. You know, he saw them bleeding the cattle, which is what they do to get the blood, which, of course, is rich in vitamins A and D. Like he observed a lot of their traditions 
still intact. And hey, can I, I, I got to interrupt for just a second because most Westerners, uh, I'm sure you've seen it. The Maasai uh, in hard times have actually, actually it was in a movie called the killing fields where a guy was going to die and he poked a little hole in the neck of a cow or an ox or something to drink the blood. But what you've got to realize is when you're drinking the milk from the udder or drinking blood, if that's in the culture, which it is, that's life. That is alive, what you're ingesting. And I'm sorry for interrupting, but I think it's an important point because we, we don't need anything, barely anything that's alive in this part of the world. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, no, he was dutifully recording everywhere he went, what he observed. And again, it's in this, people should really check out nutrition and physical degeneration. It'll blow your mind because the other thing that he noticed was the teeth tell the tale. So in the Hale and Hardy people who were still living according to their traditions, he found in case after case in Peru, in Switzerland, in the outer Hebrides and Scotland, like he found that there was a very, very low incidence of cavities if they were found at all. And there was room for all of the teeth in people's mouths. You know, he would just look and you would see these broad smiles. And then sometimes in some places in Peru, for example, he was able to study skulls. He got permission to go to a museum or he found some ransacked tombs and he observed over a thousand skulls, none of which had any indication of any cavities or of any crowding. So again, the teeth told the tale of the hardiness and the health of the population. And as soon as these dead foods, as you implied, Crow, as soon as these dead foods were introduced, these teeth would start to exhibit infections and cavities, and the people, and especially the next generation, would start to suffer from modern ailments. It happens in country after country after country. And so I, became very curious myself. And I thought, well, let me keep going. I went to Kenya. Where else can I go? The Dr. Price went. I ended up in Australia and with an Aboriginal woman of the Inangai tribe, Suzanne Thompson. And she showed me land that had been occupied by her ancestors and told me so many stories. But what I want to get at is that she literally gestured to the land and she said, Hilda, this was our grocery store. This was our grocery store. Just the free land where the animals were jumping around, the kangaroos and everything literally <laughs> jumping around and, you know, the herbs and the, the medicine that's right there, they were able to avail themselves of. And the saddest place I've ever been in the entire world was, for lack of a better word, a kind of aboriginal reservation where these people were taken from their land, forced to live somewhere else and to eat the government's food. All they had was one grocery store in the town of Maningrida. And right next to it was the Hasty Tasty, which tells you everything. And it was it was horrible. It was like Kool-Aid and canned foods and the displacing foods of modern commerce on every single shelf. Were the people depressed? You know it, because they weren't eating anything alive again and they were taken from their land. So I I've been very compelled to yeah, share the work of Dr. Price and to continue pursuing it as an experiential anthropologist myself because it's so important. And so now I just want to get to his key finding because he came to a lot of conclusions, as you might imagine. But the key one was nutrient density. Basically, he said traditional diets maximize the nutrients where modern diets minimize them. Because what he did was he took samples of the food from all these places all over the world, 
shipped them back to his lab in Ohio for analysis. And what he found was that even in the 1930s, these diets, these traditional diets around the world were much more rich than the standard American diet of his day. They were four times the rich, they had four times the richness of the water-soluble vitamins like riboflavin and the B vitamins. So they had that richness. And then 10 times the content of fat-soluble vitamins, which are the A, D, E, and K. And so his conclusion was, we need to go back, like you were saying, Crow, to the living food, to animal products primarily that contain these fat-soluble vitamins that are kind of activators or orchestra leaders of telling all the nutrients in our body where to go and how to be absorbed. And so that's that was his key finding, the nutrient density. And that's what I'm I'm calling people back to in part. So many people kind of lose track in the culture that I grew up in. And I know it because I lost track. I had never considered breastfeeding as an example. Uh, when I thought about it, the only thing I thought about was the controversies. Oh, well, should this be allowed in public? And all these other ridiculous controversies that are brought on by a death-based society, which is us, by the way, we live in a death-based society. It's not really arguable if you look at it logically, but when a mother is breastfeeding, she's not just imparting probably the best nutrition that could be imparted to the new life. It's alive. It's life. And this led me to the Gerson thing where I realized that it was nutrition based, but it was alive. And to this day, the cultures, even, you know, in Europe, you can go to places in Italy where they're not pasteurizing their cheeses and their milks. There's life in that. That really is the departure point for us. Cause I can't remember a time in my lifetime when anything that we got commonly to include milks and cheeses uh, were allowed to be alive. As far as I know, in my lifetime, it's all been killed. Of course, they have a clever word for killing our food. It's called pasteurization. <laughs> but to make a point, recently, my wife has a family member who has had terrible asthma her whole life. And recently, I sent her a Recoweg remedy. I don't remember. It was one of the 40s. Is it R43? Maybe it's R49. I don't remember. You could look up what it's for. But she's been on these inhalers for most, well, all of her adult life. And mm -hmm. she always has to have one of these rescue inhalers, which cost a ridiculous amount of money. And there's like 15 or 30 hits on it to save you if it gets bad. She took the Recoweg straight out of the bottle, put a few drops under her tongue. And she wrote me back immediately. Oh my God, I can breathe. And this is what I'm talking about because the Recoweg idea is in line in a way with what you're witnessing through what we call tribes who, what's the big difference here? The big difference is they still have culture, right? Isn't that really yeah. the difference? Well, yeah, they have a culture that takes them to what's alive. They live connected to nature. Like you always say, there's no lie in nature. And that's maybe why they're closer to the truth. So they're getting their food as young ones directly from their backyard. And then we've been told that everything that's packaged and pretty and has the right label is going to do us good when it's full of ingredients we can't even pronounce. So yeah, that difference between what's alive and what's dead is really critical. And that's, that's what Dr. Price was noticing even in his day, like a hundred years ago, you know, we need to return to seafood, to organ meats, things that we kind of turn our nose up at and 
but we're sacrificing our health on the altar of convenience. And it's taking us down a path that is not benefiting us, but only benefiting the bottom line for pharmaceutical companies and the sick care system, if you will. So we need to do a U-turn and go back to these life-giving and and life-enhancing foods. You know, there's, I don't want to take us too far off and I'm going to pull right back to the bullet points, but consider this, Hilda, are you familiar with the work of Dr. Emoto who did everything with water? Yes. Basically. So Dr. Emoto, everybody knows he proved some things about water which are foundational game changers. Maybe I should say rediscovered. He didn't bring anything new to the table. He just recognized it in a forgetful era. One of the things he did was he would do a simple test, like take a clear bottle, two clear bottles, same water in both. And on one, he would write something like love or on the other one, hate, and then freeze them to show that the intention had been somehow embedded into the water memory, but also when the intention wasn't put there, just the label, the words, the intention that someone put to write the word love or hate, consider all the packaging on all our food. If you can truly take a bottle of water and write the word hate, now consider all the logos, the colors, which are all vibrations like Mountain Dew is some weird ungodly color, but all the little shapes and symbols, to me, that plays into exactly what we're talking about because in these so-called tribal cultures and dietary habits, uh, there's none of that, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there mm-hmm. is no <laughs> intention through the written word or symbol put in. As a matter of fact, a lot of the cultures used to make a kill and they would stop and pray and give thanks to the animal for giving up the life so that they could live, things like this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, So many things are coming to mind right now. But one is in one of the tribal groups that Dr. Price came across in Uganda, he said they considered the liver a sacred food. And actually, this happened in many countries. They, the people literally did give thanks. They recognized that their life force could be found in the liver. In this Ugandan tribe, they wouldn't even touch the liver. They had that much respect for it. They would handle it with their spears and so forth as they distributed it among the community. But liver and butter were among the sacred foods that he found around the world. Uh, so yeah, there's there's something really beautiful about the intention. Another story I want to tell as I kind of take you with me to a Quechua community in Ecuador was that I met this group of traditional Quechua or Quechua people and the one of the elders in the group was Mama Rosita Colta, a partera and curandera, a healer and a midwife. And so I got to fellowship really with them during a time, a special time of year, they have this Inti Raimi festival. Anyway, when I was talking to them, they said, you know, in 2020, a lot of us got COVID minimus or whatever, whatever you call it. You know, a lot of us got sick, she said. And this is what we did. Some of the women in the community gathered together. 20 medicinal plants and herbs. And they took them to each household that had gotten sick. And they told me, Hilda, no one was hospitalized and no one died. And I was eager, as you can imagine, let me see that list of what plants and herbs made the list. And then I realized exactly what you're saying, Crow, that it wasn't so much perhaps the plants themselves, although I'm sure 
they had medicinal properties. It might've also been the intention with which they were given. So they were given with a spirit of love and communal support and it blew me away. And so I, I think there's really a lot to that. And we're missing that in this day and age too. We're all in our own little subdivisions and our own little cages, if you will. And we're missing that connection with one another that is so vital to the human spirit. You know, it's interesting that a place so remote people would have been getting sick. But, you know, I think a big part of this is it plays back to what Dr. Franco Lina put on the table so long ago on an episode we did, I don't know, six years ago, five years ago. I don't even remember. It's been so long. His idea, um, which has been confirmed and which I currently accept, is that what we call the flu is electromagnetic in nature. And he described it as electromagnetic vampirism. So if you begin to look at how an outlying tribe, for some reason, ends up with what we would call the flu, how does that happen? And what I did, and I told Jason about it, Jason knows because he saw this in real time. I got really sick one day and I had already taken it on board that it if I could raise my vibrational level, I wouldn't feel bad. And it was the flu coming on. The first day I felt so bad, I couldn't even go outside, didn't even want to try. Second day, I dragged my bones outside and I sun gazed and I was okay by the end of the day. But in that sun gazing, I made it my mission to try to consciously raise my vibration to the best of my ability. And that's when I began to realize that there's probably something to this. And so it's kind of scary to consider that there are outlying tribes so far from major, you know, modern civilization that are getting what we might describe as the flu. At the same time, they're pushing the Coviticus bullshitimus narrative on the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I interviewed Dr. Arthur Furstenberg, who wrote The Invisible Rainbow, and he alludes to the electrification of our cities. And uh, that's its correlation to illness. And absolutely, there are people in the Western A. Price Foundation organization, including Sally Fallon Morell, who's convinced that our electrification and radiation, the kind of smog that we've created is contaminating our health and even the most remote peoples. You know, so many of these cultures, how many of the cultures that you, I mean, I'm going through the list of just the ones you've listed here. Did you find, and this is a little off topic, but did you find sacred geometry in any of the cultures, in any of your encounters? Did you notice sacred geometry? You know what, Crow? I don't feel like I was in these villages long enough to get to that level. Honestly, I'm thinking about a tribe I saw recently in Ethiopia, the Dorse tribe, and they were describing to me their weavers. They were describing to me how they weave their huts. They literally look so tightly woven. They absolutely can resist rain and the elements. And they explained how they make them very high so that when the termites come, you know, after a couple of years, they can cut off the bottom and the house gets smaller. I mean, it was fascinating. And that was just a, a, a passing encounter with the doors. I didn't get to dwell with them. I imagine if I did, I certainly would, because there is a reason behind everything that they do. And I think I'm only barely scratching the surface of some of the depths of what can be found in terms of even healing modalities that these cultures have tapped into. Oh, and I do want to tell you a quick story. This is amazing to me. 
So Dr. Price also visited Native Americans or Indians uh, in the Seminole tribe in Florida and in the northern part of British Columbia. And he was asking some of them, you all don't get scurvy, but the white man gets scurvy. Um, You know, what's your secret? And uh, one of the uh, indigenous people said, let me go check with the chief and make sure it's okay for me to answer this question to you. But then he said this, he said, the white man knows too much to come and ask us usually. In other words, our arrogance is keeping us from remembering these traditions or even seeking them out. And this is one reason I like Dr. Price. And this is one reason I go in all humility to every group I encounter because they know way more than I'll ever know. I go as a learner, sharing what I can when I can, but I go as a learner and as, and as a as an observer. And so about the geometry, I can't say, but my guess is that it's there and I just haven't seen it yet. I, I'm like you. Uh, my culture is Fugazi and all I know is that I've been misled. And when I bump into or have the privilege to meet someone who actually still has a connection to ancient culture, man, I got a thousand questions. I just, I want to know as much as I can know. And, you know, isn't it interesting? These are always the places that are under attack. I mean, Jason did an episode on the, uh, the Kalahari Bushmen, and they have just put a full frontal on those people, even to the point where they're passing laws that makes it illegal for them to hunt. Yes. That, that's like coming to my neighborhood and saying it's illegal for you to go to the grocery store anymore. That's exactly right. I found that in Ethiopia. I was in the Omo Valley and many tribal people said, oh, well, we're not, it's hunting is illegal. And honestly, Crow, they didn't look well, some of them, even though I didn't see a lot of packaged and processed foods. So that's great. But if they're weaning off of meat because they're not allowed to hunt, it, it, you're right. It's, it's unconscionable. There's intent all over it. There is a depopulation agenda underlying almost anything that I can take the time to dissect. I can detect the kind of death-paced depopulation agenda to the point where sometimes, you know, no wonder this alien thing, you know, the idea that, oh, well, aliens are getting us out of here so they can take over our world. It's almost that bad where you could start to think about ridiculous notions that don't have much to back them. But it's clear this is going on. You know, was it an episode or two ago? There's a very popular yogi or, you know, Indian guru guy. And since I don't badmouth people or bag on them, I will simply say that someone put a clip of his in front of me and it was all about neem, the, the herb neem, which I was kind of familiar with having read so many Indian texts, and I knew that it was commonly a tree that grew all over and that there were uses for it. But in the clip that I was sent, he's telling both men and women, take it every day in the morning, quite a bit of it with tepid water. Then we had a guest on not too long after I saw that, that said that this will make men sterile if they take it long enough, or it can, and it is absolute effective birth control for women. So there you have a supposed Indian guru apparently tied up in the depopulation agenda. Why else would you say such a thing? And this is really kind of how bad it's gotten because anyone who would be listening to an Indian guru is clearly trying to seek past the limited culture that we have at our disposal. Yeah. And there's so much strategy 
to removing us from this remembering, from removing us from what is essentially life-giving and and taking us in another direction. And one of them, and we could go down a rabbit hole with this, but is simply entertainment. It's that we're so numb to what's real and true, and we're so amused by the latest TikTok dance video or whatever is going viral that we've lost touch with what's really life-giving and what's really joy-bringing and what's going to nurture our health and our spirit. It's, it's, so I guess what I'm thinking is some people are being duped and others are being sidetracked and others are simply being removed from their land and their traditions. But whether it's by obvious intent and strategy or more duplicitous, it's happening to all of us. So actually I'm going to, Jason, I'm going to try to send this to you because it's so small that I can't read it. I put it into the chat, Jason. Everyone remembers that I recently said you should absolutely go subscribe to Michael Hoffman's newsletter. And I'm going to have Jason read this, Hilda, because it's one of the best kind of bite-sized description of what's been done to Western culture to get us to this state. Um, Can you see that and read it, Jason? Oh, yeah. Can you give that a go? And by the way, I think it's perfidious, (laughs) just so you know, because I had to think about it. Why are Americans inert, indeed almost paralyzed, in the midst of so many dramatic revelations lately concerning the perfidious iniquity of our rulers? Centuries ago, it was deduced that in this time and place, after enough immersion in the alchemical crucible, that the people would be in a psychological decay state where we are exhausted by the truth. In past generations, Revelations of high crimes would have been revitalizing incentives to concerted action in bringing perpetrators to justice. In the West, in Century 21's Society of the Spectacle, they are mostly grist for the thrill of the weak on the part of a mass of degenerate voyeurs spectating at their own demise at which they aspire to obtain a front row seat. There it is, folks. That is a little GIF image at the top of each of Michael Hoffman's newsletters. And I don't know, Jason, what would you say? I have seen this idea broken down no better, particularly in a single paragraph. Mm. Did you catch that he said centuries ago it was recognized that we could start alchemically processing everybody? Now, when we come back to speak with someone like you, Hilda, and we witness what's going on with these so-called tribal cultures, they are not exempt. They are targeted. And as a matter of fact, they probably within their culture have infinitely more truth and ties to nature and things that matter than any of the Western cultures that are being taken apart piecemeal. And the reason uh, I thought it was important Jason read that is because it reflects directly on what's happening to these kind of more pure cultures. Right now, this is happening. Yeah. And to go back to Jason's comment earlier about, is everybody all in with being swept up with these uh, this movement or are they holding on to their traditions? I think it, in every place, there certainly must be people who are torn. I, I have another story from a tribal group I visited in Ethiopia, the Cattle. They were beautiful. They sat down with me. Some of these groups are not so isolated, as I said earlier, um, from modernity. So they knew, obviously, I was not from their group and I came to explore and to learn. And so we sat down and they told me of some of their traditions. 
And at the end of the time, a woman approached me and she had her baby in her arms. And she said, in in other words, because she couldn't speak a lot of English, but she said, give me money so I can take my baby to the doctor. And in that same tribal group, someone earlier had pointed out to me, here are the trees whose leaves we make into a tea if someone has malaria. This is the tree that we go to when people have yellow fever. And he, in essence, explained to me that they have everything they need. And yet here was a woman convinced that in the modern hospital or a modern doctor with a white coat on would have the secret for how to help her child. So yeah, the influence is really strong and really pervasive. The magical patina, right? And, yep. and you know, we have it. My culture has that. How, how all the more to a place across the world who, you know, there's not all these modern gadgets sees us as, you know, having abilities that are astounding. I don't know. It's just so unfortunate. But I think a big part of what's going on now is the ultimate test where we choose to either go back to what's true and correct, or we have one hell of a rough ride for however long it takes. Well, and even if we're the only ones, right? Once you've heard that bell ring true, as you say, you you can't go back. We can't pretend and we don't want to. And I think there is a growing community of people who are ready for something else. And maybe like you said, that's why they're listening to the Indian guru, but soon enough, they will discover by themselves this isn't working for me. I don't feel as good as that guy said I would. And that's why I love to say what my friend Tommy John says too, N equals one. In other words, you are your own study group. Stop looking to what the latest science is showing about some study in 2022 and what it revealed. You are your own individual, capable, autonomous child of God. And you can understand intuitively and profoundly if something is working for you or not. And you, if you take the time to dare to get in touch with who you are and whose you are, you are going to be in a much better place than anyone who, as you described earlier, would become inert because of their entertainment and their submission to the powers that be. You know, it's a critical idea that you're putting on the table here because as our good friend, the music conspiracy guru who wrote the music for this podcast, wrote a song where he's talking about the magical juice of the Covidius inoculation. So he says in the lyrics, one size fits all. And this is exactly the point I would make. Each outlying group that was tied to nature had their own culture, and that culture passed forward the things that was important for that group to know. You might have a group that lived, I don't know, 90-something percent of everything they ate on meat, and then go over to some place in India like the Jains, which didn't eat any meat, and yet their culture kept them healthy and connected. Uh, the main point being is one size does not fit all. And one of the big agendas here, it seems to me, is to homogenize humanity, to act like we are all the same, uh, to remove any individualized ideas of what an individual can uniquely bring to the table. And in the same way, our food's been homogenized. How can it be that some magical chemical that they're going to shoot into veins is not only good for everybody everywhere, but all the way down to what, what are we down to now? A baby that's, I think, six months old. Is that where we've arrived? It is beyond the pale of the most basic common sense. And I think another thing that's about to happen 
is the people who are bereft of common sense are probably going to exit the stage at this point. But all right. So we're like, we got like a couple minutes to get this last point in. We've got to do this quickly. It can bleed over into hour two. As a matter of fact, are we better off just picking up the Eagle Hunters for hour two? Because I don't want to rush them. So maybe we should just push this forward to hour two, Hilda? I would say so, yeah. All right. So what we're going to do here is we're going to wrap up hour one of episode 540. Hilda, please tell folks how they can contact you, where they can get at your podcast, other work that you are providing. Absolutely. So again, I can be found at holistichilda.com. And if people want to reach out to me and my team directly, they can write us at support at holistichilda.com. I've got a YouTube channel where I'm putting forth some of this information on some of the other social media channels as well. And I also want to mention the Weston A. Price Foundation because I I respect them so much. They can be found at WestonAPrice.org. And the podcast is Wise Tradition. All right, there it is. Jason, anything you want to get in before I wrap her up? So I I know this would be opening a can of worms, but are there any cultures anywhere that you have encountered or that Weston Price encountered that didn't eat meat at all for any particular reason? That is a great question. And I will tell you this. It was Dr. Price's, quote unquote, greatest disappointment that he did not find any plant-based cultures. He did not find any that didn't include any animal products at all. No, he did not. And he was very disappointed because he thought he would. So that was part of what led to his key finding about nutrient density, that we need, we do need animal products. Yeah, I think that's true for most of us at differing levels. The problem is, is that we get mindsets, right? And the idea of using animal products now is based on the idea of people know how animals get treated and the corporate farming. It's unconscionable. And that begins to shape the overall narrative. But when we come back, we're going to open up with the Kazakh eagle hunters near and dear to my heart. I have been fascinated with this culture since I was very young. I believe it's golden eagles that they form a relationship with to cut to the chase They are so in tune with what's true in nature that they get the young eagles as hatchlings or close to it, and they release them at a certain point, recognizing that they too have a role to play in nature, free of working for a human being. Uh, Anyhow, oh, I will add, here's another thing. A friend of mine who was big into birds here saw the first ruby-throated hummingbird come into Rhode Island roughly 10 years ago. They were never here. Now they're everywhere. The other day I saw, well, my wife and I were outside and we saw the back of an immense uh, raptor. And I said, honey, that is absolutely a bald eagle. I know it is, but we didn't get a good look. Three days ago, going down to the beach, I heard a red-tailed hawk screaming at something, looked up. There was a red-tailed hawk just harassing a giant bald eagle. Never have I seen a bald eagle this far south. Um, I don't know if others have the experience. The change is not just with us. There are proofs in nature that things are shifting. And when I see things like that, it gets me to thinking. Anyhow, that's hour one of episode 540. Uh, Hour one is free to everybody at pro777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full two-hour episode, and they get access to all the forums, comments under every episode, and free access to the two-hour film called Shoot the Moon, which covers all my telescope work, lunar waves, uh, the first filming that I'm aware of of the second sun or the sun we don't see. And with that, I'd like to wrap up. Wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. 
And I hope to see you logged in as a member on the other side at crow777radio.com. There it is, man. Cheers. Belief is the enemy of knowing.